Boy, how special would it be for God to actually speak? How special would it be for God's presence to be with us in such a way that you knew it? You could interact with Him. Uh, These things are not just possibilities, they're realities. And they're things that followers of Christ uh, know and experience with God day by day, all the time, frequently. And I wonder if that is your experience. Is God real and personal and life penetrating to you in that kind of way? Would you like for it to be so? If you would like for that to be so, then you're in the right place for these days because we are on a journey together that we're calling going deeper with God. And so I have to ask the question because you need to answer it for yourself. Do you want to go deeper with God? Do you want something that is more than superficial, something that is to the core of your being real and authentic and engaging with God? And if you answer that too lightly, then you might be in for some surprises in a disappointing kind of way. Because if you just kind of lightly say, well, sure, who wouldn't want to go deeper with God? Uh, you might miss the, the, the fact that along the way to, to know God more fully and to go more deeply with him means it's going to change your life. And so that's kind of the same question along the way. Do you want your life changed? Do you want to be different? Do you want to be another person, not a better you, but a Christ-like person? So that's what our journey is about these days. And, you know, to kind of get that underway, you've got to kind of figure out who is this God anyway. And that's where we were last week. Who is God? What's God like? What would it mean to know him and have a relationship with him? And then kind of like right on the heels of that is, who are you? Let me begin to get a little clearer picture about who God is. Okay, I see, you know, he's here. Then, then who am I? And what capacity or what right have I to get up close and personal with this awesome God. So today we're going to be talking about understanding self better in light of God. And I want to begin with a statement that we looked at briefly last week from A.W. Tozer, who said, what comes to mind when you think about God? Because whatever comes to your mind When you think about God, that's the most important thing about you. How you begin to see who he is and how you begin to comprehend who he is, how you begin to understand this is God, says volumes about you. So, for example, if I see God as that cop in the sky who's got that sin radar gun just waiting to bust me for going over some limit, that says a whole lot about me. 
and my resistance to drawing near to God. If God, if that's what God is like, I'm not going to get very near that God. I'm going to try to avoid that God. I'm going to play a game with God. I'm going to try to see if I cannot be caught by God. And the fact of the matter is that God takes sin very seriously, but his heart is not bent toward busting us. His heart is not bent toward judging us and condemning us. His heart is bent toward redeeming and forgiving and reconciling us. But you kind of have to figure out, do do I perceive God as the radar-toting cop in the sky? Or do I see God more as kind of that ancient, great-grandfatherly type in the sky? You know, the long beard one that kind of sits in the rocking chair and just kind of looks at what's going on in the world down below. And uh, he kind of looks at you like that uh, endeared grandson or granddaughter and just kind of winks at you and smiles at you from time to time. And you kind of mess up, you kind of screw up, and he just kind of winks at that, and it's all okay. See, if that's your idea of God, he, he's, just, he's just love. God is love. Then really, you're not going to be too drawn to him, because that's irrelevant. That's not this mighty, awesome God that he is. And if your concept of God is kind of that great fix-it God in the sky who works his tools in such a way that he can handle all your problems, then, friend, you're only going to be thinking about God or looking in God's direction when you've got a problem that needs to be fixed. And you basically use God. And don't misunderstand, God is pleased to interact in our lives and to address our problems and to help us with life's issues. But that's not primarily who he is and what he's about. So what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind? Let's take a look at a couple of snapshots in the Bible to see if God can begin to be re-imaged, redefined in our perception. And I want to encourage you to think with me out of the Gospel of Mark, the fourth chapter to begin with. And by the way, we're going to do some reading in Isaiah 6 in a moment. If you want to go ahead and find that, you'll be ready for when we read the text together. In Mark chapter 4, we're told about a time that uh, the fishermen went out to fish on the Sea of Galilee. Now, you may be aware in topography that the Sea of Galilee is kind of a fascinating place. It's actually a freshwater lake. It's not a sea at all. And it is in this very low basin that is, you know, about 700 feet below sea level. And it's got mountains that surround it that go, you know, several hundred feet above sea level. And so it is the perfect setting for quick storms to come upon you unexpectedly. And you read story after story in the Bible about that kind of thing happening on the Sea of Galilee, and this is one of them. And so uh, some of the disciples of Jesus get in a boat, many of whom are seasoned fishermen, and they're purposing to go from one side of the lake to the other. Now, this lake is uh, like 13 miles long and 8 miles wide, so it's a substantial lake. And so they set off on this journey, and when they take off, the weather report's great. I mean, they know what they're doing. You're not going to go out when it's foul weather. And everything, all the signs were great. 
They're out there for just a little while and everything absolutely, totally changes. And this horrific storm befalls them. So much so that the, the boat that they're in is just about to capsize. It's just being tossed around like it's a toy. And even these seasoned fishermen believe they're going to die. They're all crying out, fearing that they are about to die. And the story goes on that in the back of the boat, laying on a cushion, is Jesus asleep. And the disciples who are beside themselves go and awaken Jesus, crying out, Wake up, we're about to perish. And Jesus stands up. And I imagine him just staring into the storm, spray splashing his face. And he says, peace, be still. And boom, like that. The Bible says the waters became calm, the winds subsided, and the storm was no more. Now imagine that you're in the boat, you're one of these disciples. How do you respond at that moment? I mean, maybe, you're, maybe you cry and you just, oh, thank you, God, that we're not dead, that, that, that we didn't die in this. Maybe, maybe you just give thanks. Maybe you just kind of stand there with your mouth agape, amazed at what Jesus just did. The Bible, verse 41 of chapter 4 says that the disciples didn't do any of those things. The Bible says that the disciples began to fear with a greater fear. Now, are you with me? They had been afraid out of their mind already at the storm. Now Jesus stills the storm, and they are more afraid than they were when they were about to die. Why? What's going on? See, Jesus had just blessed them, right? Jesus had just done a good thing. Jesus had just delivered them, saved their lives. Why would they fear even more? And the text says that they began to wonder and ponder with one another, Who is this? That even the storms obey Him. Who is this? And they began to get a glimpse of the holy. And pardon me, I've got to have a... <coughs> Do you begin to conceive... Of God being so holy other, so different from us, that it puts the fear of God, if you will, in us. So those of you that pray, pray for me. Because <clears throat> I just crossed a line where my throat is going crazy now. 
Let me give you one more story. This is a story out of Luke chapter 5. And uh, you may recall that Peter and some other disciples had been out fishing. This was their business, their livelihood, and they'd been fishing all night. And they hadn't caught anything. And they came back. They were pretty frustrated. They were pretty upset about it. And uh, Jesus shows up. And he says to Peter, hey, let's get in the boat. Let's go out again. I want you to drop your nets again. Now, Jesus is not a fisherman, right? Jesus is a carpenter. And Peter, the fisherman, is a little ticked off about this. He's a little frustrated. And he's like, do you not know we just came in? Do you not know we've been fishing all night? Do you not know we haven't caught a thing? You want us to go out again in the time of day where you don't catch fish anyway? And they were washing their nets and putting everything away. So he's a little frustrated, but he catches himself and real quickly he says, okay, but nevertheless, because you say so, we will. And you know how the story goes. They go out there and they began to drop their nets and the nets began to fill with a catch of fish that is so great, the nets began to rip. Thank you, Adam. Now, imagine you're out there with the fishermen. How do you feel? What are you thinking? I can just see the guys on the boats. You know, they're like giving each other high fives and they're like screaming and yelling, look at this catch of fish. This means my family eats. This means that I'm going to be able to pay my bills. This is a very exciting thing. There's a lot of celebration. There's a lot of hooting and hollering as only sailors can do. Got the picture? (laughs) And in the middle of that, Peter falls at the feet of Jesus. And he says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Now, what's going on with Peter? Can he not be in the moment? Does he not know how great and glorious and fun and wonderful that this is? He gets all that. What he gets even more so is who was responsible for that catch. This Jesus is different. And being in the presence of Jesus began to show Peter who Peter was. Are you following me? When Peter truly saw that Jesus was God, and he began to get this clear glimpse of who God is, then he began to more truly and fully see who he was. Now, this is exactly the scenario that happened with Isaiah last week that we were talking about. To be in the presence of God, to begin to get it, who God is. Begins to cast the light on yourself in such a way as you get it as to who you really are and who you are not. Because, friends, we have spent an entire lifetime building this kind of facade and this kind of image and this thing that we project about who we are and our adequacy and our competencies and our excellency and really whimpering child of a person inside that is afraid and sinful. And Peter began to get that. Let me me just say it this way to you, friends. God is everywhere all the time. He's in this room with us right now. Jerry tried to draw our attention to that with some of the songs that we sang today. 
And like many on the other boats who were bringing in the fish that day, it goes right by. It just goes right by. And that's not who I want to be. I want to be the guy that gets it. He's here. I want to be the guy that sees and senses his presence. I want to be the guy that hears his voice. As we were saying a minute ago, word of God, speak. Wash over me. Penetrate, impact, transform. I want to be that guy. And that's a glimpse of who he is and who we are and what the journey looks like to go deeper with him. That's a glimpse. But here's what else Peter began to discover and that we have to have grip us as the truth that it is. If God is that different from us, that holy and that transcendent, then what hope do we have to draw near to Him? Because we, we are not holy. Now, let's make sure we're on the same page when we're talking about this. I defined it for you last week. Let me remind us, when we're talking about holiness, we are not talking about purity. We're not talking about uh, moral behavior and moral excellence. And those things are part of the connotation of holiness, but they're secondary and third and so on. The primary connotation of holiness is separateness. Separate and different from everything else is what holy refers to. We're not talking about, okay, you just got to be gooder people. We're not talking about that. We're talking about holier, more separate, more in the hand of God people. That's what we're talking about. So when we're looking at the biblical connotation of holiness, it is both a separateness, but also a transcendence. He is, he is higher. His ways are not our ways. He, he is an altogether different being than ourselves. And, and what we have proclivities to do is to project humanity onto God so that we can try to, you know, uh, conceive of Him better and contain Him better in our thoughts. We, we are trying to, with finiteness, con- comprehend the infinite. And when we talk about holiness, see, we're calling ourselves back from don't apply our finiteness to His Infinitude. Let's let him be who he is. And, and let's be awed by that. Let's be stunned by that. Let's, let's tremble it before that. Because it is that different from us. So again, it's not a moral reference, but it's a reference to something that has been consecrated or set aside to him. So when the Bible talks about certain buildings being holy, it's not because they have a superior brick and mortar to some other building. It's because they have been set aside for God and God's purposes. When we talk about, you know, in the temple, bread that is holy, it's not because it was made with different ingredients. It's because that bread has been set aside for the purposes and the use of God and worship. And when we talk about a holy people or a holy nation which is what believers in Jesus Christ are, we're not talking about people that are morally superior to everyone else. We're talking about people who have been so seized by God that they have been set aside by Him for Himself, for His purposes, for His plans. 
And one of the things that we're going to have to get over is this connotation that a holy people is kind of this picture of self-righteous, legalistic, feel like you're morally superior, you know, that holier-than-thou kind of mentality. That is not, that is not, that is not what we're talking about. That is repugnant to God. What we're talking about is like a Peter who falls at the feet of Jesus in humility, not pride, not superiority. I've got my act together. Why don't you? But understanding while he's in the presence of God, how much he needs God. That's why Jesus could say, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They get it, how busted they are, how much they need God. So, Peter, Isaiah, so many others that we could talk about in the Bible began to see and comprehend a little bit of the holiness of God. And they would go, what hope do I have? I'm undone. I'm sinful. I'm busted. There's no way that I can have proximity to a holy God. There's no hope. Except for the fact that God loves us. And John 3.16 tells us that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, would not have this life and the life to come out of relationship with God, would not perish, but have everlasting life. In other words, God has a plan to so touch and address your life and my life that He would make us holy. We can't get there. But He would make us holy so that we would be set apart for Him. And the Apostle Paul articulated it for us this way in Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. He will deliver you from the blight of sin, the penalty of sin, He will redeem, renew, restore, reconcile, and make holy your life. Got to get rid of the moral behavior thing. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the position of your life. Not the practices of the position of your life. Now, here's a little bit about the way... The Bible gets at this, and I'm going to give you three theological words to kind of unpack this, all right? right. I said theology and your eyes glazed, okay? So just give me three minutes here, okay? Uh, And the first word is this, regeneration. Regeneration is when, by faith, I believe I'm a sinner who needs a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior, and I give, I surrender my life. To Jesus. When that happens, the Bible says, boom, I am born as if I was born all over again. I'm born anew. I'm born from above. I'm born into a totally different person. Regeneration. And when that happens, there is a declared holiness that comes on my life at this point. He declares, Scott, you're holy. Joe, Bill, Sam, Fred, you're holy. You're separated unto me. 
Now, the reality is, even though I have been declared that, even though I have had this new birth, and even though I'm repositioning myself into His hand and into His will and His purposes and His plans, there's still a lot of broken junk in my life. And He begins to address that in a process called sanctification, which means to make holy. And sanctification is processed. Holiness. I've already been declared that. Now he's going to work that in my life. It's like the clay that's been put on the potter's wheel. When I was regenerated, my clay life got put on his wheel. And now he is spinning the wheel and he's beginning to shape and to form and to fashion my life. That's sanctification. To make holy. To make his vessel according to his will and his plans. Are you following me? That continues from the point of my regeneration all the way until I die. Every day of my life until I die. I have been being sanctified for 30-something years now. You go, Scott, I would hope there would be more to show for that. Me too. I'm still a work in process. God is not finished with me yet. Somebody say amen. So, okay. Then the third word that I want you to get is the word glorification. Because once this life is over, once I have breathed my last, once I cross over into the next world, if I am in Christ and I have been saved by His work on the cross, then boom, the work of sanctification is completed. And God completes and finishes everything that was begun in me with regeneration and sanctification. And I stand before God as Jesus stands before God. Are you following me? Completed holiness. This is the stuff to talk about in your group this week. This is one of the reasons why we wanted you to have group experiences over these weeks. Because these are weighty things to talk about, to unpack, and to make sense for your own everyday kind of experience. And so I hope you'll be in a group this week and talk about some of these things. Let me move on to, so then what are we going to do? In light of what we have been talking about, and we began to understand God differently, and we began to understand ourselves differently, and we began to understand that our only hope is some regenerating thing happening in me that would be followed by sanctification, ultimately complete in glorification. What am I supposed to do now? What's my next step? Well, we learned that from Isaiah. So look with me in Isaiah chapter 6, and we're, we're just about to finish. So if you're like, holy cow, how long does this go? We're almost through. First one. And for those of you that were with us this, uh, on this text last week, just allow it to come alive to you while we're looking at the words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Yeah, I want to be that guy. I want to be that guy. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, angelic beings. And each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook. This just rocked my world. At the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm undone. And I am a man of unclean lips. 
And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Send me. Real quickly. What do we do in light of what we've been hearing today? Well, Isaiah is a great picture, paradigm for us to follow. The first is, be confessional. When you begin to see who you are, because you see who he is, then you begin to see all of this stuff that's broken and busted. And to confess means that I will agree with God about my state. Okay? Now... Isaiah already had a relationship with God. Okay? So out of that relationship, he had already been declared holy. He would already been declared. He's in the hand of God. He's in the will of God. He's in the plans of God, etc. But in the process of holiness, he begins to see the stuff that's still undone. I am undone. Woe is me. And so he confesses how he is undone, and he gets very specific, and he says, my, my lips are unclean. Now, I pointed this out last week. Why didn't he say my hands are unclean? The things that I do are sinful. Why didn't he say my thoughts are unclean? The things I think about which lead to behaviors are sinful. Rather, he said my lips are unclean. And this is why I said what I said with the kids this morning, because what comes out of the lips reflects what's in the heart. And what Isaiah is saying is, I've got a corrupt heart. i still got so much junk in the heart that makes its way out of my mouth. God, I am undone. And I live in a people, I'm surrounded by people who are all undone. Now, I, I, I had to confess, I've been confessing all week. In fact, I have some of this, I've, I've confessed in three different groups this past week. You go, what are you, sick? Why do you keep doing that? Because those are arenas in which I have accountability and in which I'm living with authenticity. I'm saying, hey, this is who I am and this is the junk I'm having to deal with. So, but I got a fresh one from the ones I told all three of the other groups. And I'm not going to go into detail, but the short of it was this. I kept having this memory come back to my mind about something that I had said. And don't go crazy. It wasn't profane and all that kind of stuff. But it was full of pride which stinks to heaven as much as profanity. And when I, rec- I, you know, I kept having this memory go through my mind, I'm going, you know what? You keep bringing that to my mind because I've never confessed that. I've never seen that for what it is. That was a statement full of pride. And I confessed that last night as I'm reflecting over this text. So that's what we're talking about, being confessional. And this is another reason why you want to be in your groups. You need to be having holy conversations with one another where you're being confessional. God's showing me where I'm busted and broken about this and that. And I want to confess that I was sinful about this and that and come clean before him. The second thing is that I'm then cleansed. 
Now, in Isaiah's whole little scenario, an angel goes over to the altar and, and picks up this hot coal, which apparently is too hot for the angel to touch. And so he's got tongs, and he brings this thing over, and he and sears the lips of Isaiah. I mean, can you even begin to imagine the pain that is associated with touching a hot coal to lips, which is one of the most sensitive parts of the body? Point being, friends, cleansing can be very painful. Cleansing is not the great-grandfather in the sky who, oh, there's a boo-boo, and wink at it, and it's okay. God paid an excruciating price for our forgiveness. Forgiveness is very costly. It costs Jesus the cross. And our cleansing is a matter of seeing this for what it is and then Him beginning to remove that, to strip it, to rip it, to, to sear it out of our lives. And this can be a very painful process. I've been in this process for an intense way for several weeks now in, in preparation for what we're doing over these weeks. I'm not having a lot of fun. Are you with me? You get it. But I don't want to be the same person. I want to have something deeper and more pervasive in my life with God. And so it's kind of like, you know, the guy who just, who's up wandering out in the field and he discovers the treasure in the field. And he goes, whoa, he wants to have that treasure and he covers it back up so nobody else knows about it. And then he goes and he sells everything that he has. He liquidates all of his assets so that he can buy that piece of land. And now that he's bought that piece of land, he goes back and unearths and he's got the treasure that he wanted. That's God. And I want to do anything and everything that's necessary to be able to have that treasure in all of its fullness and glory in my life. And so Isaiah was confessional. Isaiah was cleansed. And then Isaiah was consecrated. See, when God's doing this whole sanctifying, cleansing thing in his life, then all of a sudden he's hearing God say things. Like, I'm, I'm all about doing this over there. And I need somebody to be a part of that with me. And Isaiah says, here am I which is a lot different from saying, I am here. Right? I am here is about location. I'm here. Here am I is about consecration. I'm yours. Take this life. Use this life. Continue to shape and fashion it on the, the wheel and the clay and the potter just as you see fit. I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, I'll say anything, I'll be anything, I'll give anything, I'll sacrifice anything for you, oh great treasure. So will you? Will you confess sins? Will you repent? Which is to say, not going there anymore and by God's grace turn and go in a different direction. Will you receive forgiveness? Not going to live under the big cloud of uh, condemnation. And, you know, this isn't about God making you feel so awful about your sin that you, you live under that condemnation. That's about Him uh, helping you to see it for what it is so that you can be free and delivered of it. 
Will you receive forgiveness? Will you receive cleansing? Will you go through whatever painful processes are involved in having these things stripped and removed out of your life? Will you respond with consecration? Here am I. Let me pray for you. Father, there is just so much kind of banging around in the head right now. So many thoughts. We pray right now for your spirit to sift through the thoughts and allow us to zero in on the word that you have for our heart today. Word of God, speak. Will you pour down like rain, washing my eyes, allowing me to see. Father, thank you for these friends. Thank you for the invitation that you've given us to go on this journey with you over these days. Seize us and empower us to seize this day. In Jesus' name, amen.